0: Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com.
1: Hi, I'm Nicholas Fox Weber, director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation and a writer on art and architecture
0: from david zwerner this is dialogues a podcast about artists and the way they think the
1: motive was never commercial the principles of appearance had to do with honesty and rigor and um, a certain straightforwardness and i see them as very, very human values.
0: I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's guest is Nicholas Fox Weber. For this episode, we brought back an old friend from season one. Nick Fox Weber is the executive director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, and last year he published a fascinating new book about the influence of the Bauhaus on our lives today. Nick has spent his career thinking about the Bauhaus, of course, and over time he's witnessed its evolution from a seminal school of thought into a popular shorthand for an aesthetic style applicable to everything from furniture to household products to iPhones, a lot like minimalism in fact. Nick's book, iBauhaus, is a meditation on this idea through the lens of Steve Jobs' design for the iPhone, and it's also an argument against the aestheticization of the Bauhaus in our everyday lives. Nick, I thought that maybe you could begin by giving some kind of abbreviated version of how you entered into this sort of lifelong relationship with the Bauhaus as a movement, and you know your fascination with its principles and its principal personalities.
1: As an, an undergraduate in art history at Columbia, I had studied um, the Bauhaus in a modernism course and was intrigued by it. But I can't say that I was more personally involved in it um, with it than with any other aspect of beautiful design and painting developments that occurred in the 1920s. But then I had the good fortune, through a summer job at a tennis camp, to meet wonderful people named Herb and Ruth Agus, who collected the work of Annie and Joseph Albers. And Ruth Agus took me to meet um, Annie and Joseph. And so the Alberses were very much my entree in, into the Bauhaus. At the same time, I was a teaching assistant for Vincent Scully, studying modernism through his perspective, but there was nothing like meeting two people who had lived in Weimar, Dessau, and Berlin uh, through the entire tenure of the Bauhaus. And it was their values that were my perception of the school.
0: And let me then ask, you know, how would you characterize those values?
1: Well, what struck me with Annie and Joseph, and this is certainly my feeling about the Bauhaus in general, is that the Bauhaus is not a style. And I don't much like it when retail stores uh, call something Bauhaus style. There's even a chain of stores in Germany called Bauhaus, Uh, Which roughly replicates certain well known Bauhaus objects. But for me, the Bauhaus at its best was an institution that was devoted um, to real humanitarian values. And by that I mean, first of all, design of a sort that could be used by everybody, not just expensive objects, but design that could improve life in every household. Second of all, um, it was devoted to the idea of seeing, and seeing in the sense of um, being able to use one's eyes to great advantage to know the pleasures of color and line. I'm talking in the most general sense, not in a way that has to do with the school founded by Walter Gropius, but in the sense of the pleasures of seeing going back to the cave paintings at Lascaux, because the real leaders of the Bauhaus understood that what was great about really important art is that it's universal and timeless, which would also apply to profound design. And part of the beauty of the Bauhaus is that it enabled people from very different worlds to meet on equal footing. And by that, I mean that you take someone like Joseph Albers, who was from a poor Westphalian working class Catholic family. Um, his father was, should we say, a minor contractor, sort of an electrician and plumber. Um, they were not the sort of people who knew about art in his family. And you take Annie, who was from a wealthy Jewish family in Berlin, but baptized and confirmed as a Protestant. And when they met at the Bauhaus, none of that mattered. Background didn't matter. Uh, Joseph knew that his father was anti-Semitic and his view on that was just not to invite his father to their wedding. Unfortunately, I cannot think of black students having been at the Bauhaus. I cannot say that the Bauhaus was devoid of its elements of nationalism and racism. There was a census of Bauhaus students, and the Jewish students were identified as non-German. So by no means can we say that it was a place where there was total equality, but at least in that very, very class-conscious society of Germany and where wealth and family history and status and all those things made such a difference, the Bauhaus was a chance for people who were creative to meet on the same ground with the same interests.
0: And, you know, that takes us to, and and I want to just preface this by saying I'm, I would like to speak about the openness you spoke about. But before we do that, this takes us to what seems like one of the root interests in writing this book, which is that you, you find in a character like Steve Jobs, a kind of uh, analog characters to some of the people one might have found at the Bauhaus, right? Is that what first drew you to the, let's call it the Apple story? Or to put it differently, how did you even come to see these two worlds in parallel, or to see one as the culmination in some ways of uh, of the other,
1: I saw them in parallel because I use an iPhone, and one day I was looking at it and I holding it, and I just thought, "God, Annie and Joseph would have loved this." Um, as I say, the Alberses were my starting point, and I remember going into the Alberses' household in the early 70s. And um, one of the things they and I had in common was the art that we loved, and I will say some of the art that we did not love. Um, So the Alberses were not great fans of a lot of uh, very chic, very popular contemporary art. And Joseph was unabashed in the things he would say. He would pick up his Polaroid SX-70 camera and say, this is a work of art. This is beautifully made. The form follows function. And he made it very clear that he much preferred it to the art of uh, Larry Poon's or uh, Dwayne Hansen. I'm naming artists who Joseph also named. Annie would talk about the beauty of her Sony television, as a well-designed object that brought her great emotional satisfaction. And I was very aware of their values and their respect for effective machinery, uh, to the degree that when I took Annie to my parents' printing company, uh, designed by a wonderful architect named Phil DeCorsha, whose son, Philip Lorca de Um, I remember as a baby when our fathers would meet to discuss the building of Fox Press. And I took Annie there, and I mentioned that when my father was putting up the building, he had an opportunity to buy a David Smith sculpture called Standing Lithographer um, that had a steel type case as the chest. And unfortunately, the $10,000 that was going to be used to buy the David Smith was required for a fire door that had not been anticipated between the plant and the office. And Annie, instead of doing the usual thing of, oh, how terrible, and think of what it would be worth now, and what an opportunity missed, and all of that that people tend to do about artworks not purchased, looked at a two-color Swiss printing press, and she said, you see that machine? It's more beautiful than anything David Smith ever touched. So that was the Albers' mentality. And holding the iPhone, I did find myself thinking, you know, the curved corners, the neatness of the screen, the degree of whiteness, the functionality, the grace of it. um, This certainly would have appealed um, to Annie and Joseph. I had no idea of any historical connection and probably knew less about Apple and the history of Steve Jobs than most people do. Just wasn't my field of interest. I learned rather quickly that Steve Jobs was a Bauhaus junkie, um, that he loved the Bauhaus. And then I became aware that there was a specific historical connection. He really loved the way that the Bauhaus emphasized whiteness um, and Braun um, emphasized whiteness more than Sony did. Sony emphasized blackness. And Steve was very, very drawn to the movement. And the more that I learned about him, the more that I realized that he was an original, in the way that the characters at the Bauhaus were. He was someone um, who found his own way. Uh, I'm quite fascinated uh, that his mother taught him how to read and write before he went to kindergarten. Uh, I'm thinking about that all the time. I'm doing homeschooling with my five-year-old grandson and teaching someone how to read and write and form letters and become familiar with written language is really utterly fascinating. And Steve Jobs had that. He went to the fundamentals of things. He was not a typical student, did not have a classic education. And his success story fascinates me. I grew up in a world where people thought that success meant a good private school and a good Ivy League university, and that was that. In fact, I know many people who have those credentials and have not changed the world. Um, and Steve Jobs fits in with the pattern of Bauhaus people where the background, the traditional education isn't what matters. But in fact, he did change the world.
0: Is How did you square what our let's call them the design or aesthetic principles of a school like the Bauhaus, where the purpose was expressly not commercialization or uh, mass marketability with a company, which however dynamic its sort of creative leadership was, um, was ultimately geared towards making a profit and, and ultimately, I think, you know, today shareholder value.
1: There were two very distinct elements at the Bauhaus. For one thing, um, the economics of the school are very important to remember. Clay and Kandinsky met at a cafe in Weimar in 1923 at a moment when they realized that they could not afford a cup of coffee for each of them. And inflation was so bad in Germany that they repaired to uh, the Kandinsky's house to have their coffee. Um, People had very little money. And the Bauhaus, if anything, gave them more money than they had had. Kandinsky had not had a new pair of shoes for five years before going to the school, and Paul Clay needed to be there so that he could have a salary as a teacher in order to pursue his own painting. And they didn't dream of making a lot more money. All that they wanted was enough money to survive and to continue creating. Um, But Grobius had a great belief in commercialization, and he was very much in favor of the dissemination of Bauhaus designs all over the world. And they did try to produce certain objects at low enough prices so that they could be sold and marketed. And there are disputes to this very day as to who has the right to certain royalties, because there were designs made at the Bauhaus where the heirs to the designer feel entitled to the royalties, and the people who run the current incarnation of the Bauhaus feel that the school itself should be entitled to those royalties. Um, I don't know enough about Apple and Steve Jobs and that world to know the extent of the Um, financial motivation. But I would say that even though the financial success was significant, um, it wasn't the main motive. These were not people who just set out to make money by playing with the financial world or something like that. They they set out to make products and improve a design.
0: What what you're saying now, and I think what's fascinating about the book and you know, as a takeaway for me is that the disjunction that so many people bring to, you know, let's say the fields of art and commerce are challenged by the example of the Bauhaus, as you've just said, right? I mean, my I think we we typically inherit a, you know, a somewhat romantic ideal of the artist as being potentially enmeshed in a market, but by no means uh, you know, diving in head first to manipulate or control the market. Certainly there are artists we can think of who may be doing that. But as a rule, um, you know, the artists we value in the art that lasts is distinct from, let's call it consumer culture. Um, But it sounds like at the Bauhaus, you had a group of, clearly a group of artists who understood that the the designs that they were coming up with, which were totally free of, of, you know, consumer application when they when they were first designed. You know, if we're talking about a free the free play of the imaginative powers to come up with objects and and uh, designs, um, but that there was a hope or an interest in applying those to real objects, so that this design sense could could disseminate more widely and really begin to shape um, the world that we all inhabit. There were definitely uh, um, there was the wish for designs.
1: Um, that could be used almost universally. Annie Albers got her Bauhaus diploma because of a wall covering that was light-reflecting and sound-absorbing that was used in the auditorium of an establishment for a workers' union. Hannes Meyer, the second Bauhaus director, was um, an adamant socialist, very involved in Uh, the union movement, and did a quite wonderful design um, for a modern establishment uh, that was essentially where workers could um, meet together. And it was certainly not intended for the use of rich people. And Annie delighted in making that design for the auditorium. And she also Always opposed the idea of sort of fancy, expensive designs. Um, My wife used to take Annie to Sears Roebuck, um, and Annie would be in a wheelchair and she would pick up Tupperware or other very inexpensive objects and say, This is the dream of the Bauhaus, a well designed, functional object that people can afford. Um, So that was an important part of. Bauhaus life, concurrently, you had people like Paul Clay and Wassily Kandinsky who were stretching human imagination and creativity in unparalleled directions. And they were beyond anything else, just artists devoted to their particular and very beautiful vision. And the Bauhaus gave them the opportunity to paint to live as um, creative forces. Neither of those two designed objects, uh, but they were very respectful of the design that was taking place in the wood workshop and graphic workshop, glass workshop, and so on all around them.
0: You, You read my mind as you were speaking, Nick. I was turning to page 99 of your book where you effectively say what you just said. That um, as a tool, the iPhone is brilliant, but it is in no way com- comparable to Paul Klee's paintings from Weimar and Dessau, um, or to Wassily Kandinsky's free abstractions. Um, but I, 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 guess you know what I'm looking for and and not finding, and that's of course really interesting, is that there needs to be a hierarchy. I think you know in 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 my mind, the, the free play of the imagination that we ascribe to someone like Klee or Kandinsky. Ought to be ought to rank more highly than the applied imaginative intelligence we see in in, in a group of designers creating, um, you know, a commercial device, a commodity. Um, and I guess I'm wondering how you feel about that, or if the Bauhaus, as you have understood it so deeply over a life of interaction with it, actually undermines at its very foundations the idea of a hierarchy between the different art forms available to us.
1: Let's take Joseph Albers as an example. In my conversations with him, we would often talk about Piero della Francesca, and we would often talk about the architecture of Baltasar Neumann, a wonderful 18th century German Rococo architect. And we would talk about Romanesque churches. These are sublime works of art. They change our lives in ways that no object uh, can. And their impact is separate. It's different from the impact of a beautiful object, um, an exquisite pair of eyeglasses, or, um, you know, a, a, a wonderful goblet, whatever it is. Design can be sublime, but it doesn't quite reach that level of the Romanesque church or of Piero's work. That said, the Romanesque church was designed for everybody. The feeling was that in some way, its poetry, the honesty of its forms, would have an impact on every single person who walked in there. Not that it was a conscious decision, but it's there in Romanesque design. And so, we're into a very subtle realm as to what affects human emotions. I'm also aware on that level of the hierarchy of, if you've ever looked at people shopping for clothing, they are so attentive, and so focused, and so riveted, men or women, going through the racks, you just feel that they're 100% 100% engaged with, is this something I want? How will this look? And so on. You can see those same people in museums and they're distracted. They're taking their cell phone calls. They're not engaging with quite the emotional connection. One of my dreams in life, I'm still working toward it, is that people in museums would engage with the 100% passion that they do when they're selecting objects that will be part of their lives. This is something I would love to see happen, that people feel entitled to a level of pleasure looking at works of art, and that they realize that works of art are there to change their lives as they look at them. um, And This hierarchy, it's a a very important one. We live in a consumerism-obsessed society. It can be absolutely ridiculous. People think their lives will be changed if they have one more this or one more that. The recent lockdowns have changed this dramatically for a lot of people who realize all the things we can live without. Um, But Design and art are, are simply not the same, great as good design
0: is. I think, you know, what what so compellingly ties them together, uh, besides, you know, the, the inheritance of the Bauhaus in the design of the, of the iPhone, is again this question of character, which becomes essential later in your book, um, and, and really the question of courage. You know, at root, the disposition of someone like Steve Jobs and of someone like Annie Albers may have been quite similar, right? An, an intensely independent streak in um, unwillingness to bend to whatever the societal expectations or norms were, or the visual uh, and design norms of the time. And, uh, and, and that is quite a, a sort of artistic temperament, as it were.
1: And there's a totality of engagement. You feel that these are not people who just did their jobs or went about their daily lives or devoted themselves to trying to make more money. They were more than happy to make the money when it came to them. Uh, Annie was desperate for textile commissions at a certain point. But more than anything else, when they created, they were 100% there, totally engaged. Going back to your question about artworks and design, I find we're producing a book at the moment a large book on the art of Annie and Joseph Albers. And there's a page in there that's just a large spread of a detail of an Annie Albers functional textile. And I find it so moving, the interweaving of the threads, the threads themselves, the colors, the texture, that in that case, design almost has the impact of a work of art in the sense of a painting by Cézanne, which is to say that you can look at it and your breathing changes.
0: Yeah, and I, I think there, you know, pointing out Annie is 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 so powerful because, you know, her the, the medium she chose to work in, of course, relegated her to a secondary position totally unfairly for many, many years. And, of course, thanks to the work that you are doing, that's starting to be rectified. But it does feel like the hierarchy I'm describing comes with all these latent assumptions that we have to challenge, right? Assumptions about medium, dis- assumptions about craft, um, assumptions about what qualifies as a high artwork. And part of what this book does is is really ask us to challenge our responses to objects, right? Our gut responses to objects. And Annie is such a such a great example.
1: Well, you're very perceptive in the way that you see that Anna used to be very bothered by the distinctions between art and craft, and yet she also represented two points of view. She designed very beautiful functional textiles, but from the start, she also used textile as a medium where she could create individual works of art that function the way that, let's say, a painting by Mondrian does. If you look at A wall hanging that Annie Albers made in 1926 of pure geometric forms with wonderfully rhythmic colors. There's only one of that wall hanging, and her intention was for it to have the impact of an abstract painting, and indeed it succeeds as such. So she made a distinction between objects of that sort and functional wall coverings and drapery
0: materials. Mm. But, you know, what's interesting is to think that the question of the distinction between art, let's say, and design or art and other things often becomes a discussion of qualities. But if we think about it as dispositional, meaning the people who engage in making art have a certain kind of disposition, a focus and absorption and attention um, then, of course, maybe it becomes easier to understand the similarities between what seem to be very disparate fields—the fields of, let's say, design at the Bauhaus and you know the the Apple Corporation—and um, yeah. I think that's that's what your book I think helps helps reveal in some way that we need to pay attention to those personalities because whatever they end up deciding to do, um, the results will be interesting and probably energizing for for human beings.
1: And. Also, Lucas, I'm not unequivocal about elements of the iPhone. I find that it can be immensely irritating. Uh, There are aspects of its functionality which will drive one or another of us crazy. And I find the packaging uh, to be inconsistent with the leanness and elegance of the object itself. and. There are times when the apples designers get it just right. in my opinion, the outline of the apple is very successful, but an apple with a rainbow pattern on it I find very jarring, um, not up to the standards of um, the Bauhaus at its best. So it's a it's a very qualified comparison um, but, I'm fascinated by the use of modern technology that was important to people at the Bauhaus as it was to the people at Apple. And ironically, Joseph Albers worked with Corning Glass in the same years that Steve Jobs was working with Corning Glass, using the latest technology for the benefit of some windows that he was designing in Minnesota.
0: The last thing I wanted to ask about is the is the kind of philosophical uh, strain that makes its way in toward the very end of the book, um specifically through Plato. And I'm curious how you know your interest in visual culture have overlapped or dovetailed with interest in philosophy, um you know as manifest explicitly in this book, but also just more generally.
1: Um, I would say that personally, I respond visually, um, and then look to ideas which perhaps help me better to understand uh, that level of visual response. Plato's vision was extremely important to people at the Bauhaus specifically. Um, The emphasis on tactile beauty, the emphasis on visual beauty, and it also has to do there, there is an enormous overlap um, in the sense of rightness and morality. And when, when I think about the Alberses, again, my exemplar of uh, Bauhaus values, but this would have been true equally of Clay or Schlemmer uh, or some of the other great people who were there. Design for them had to be honest. Uh, The motive was never commercial. The principles of appearance had to do with honesty um, and rigor and uh, a certain straightforwardness. And I see them as very, very human values. Um, I think it's perfect that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is such a fan of Joseph Albers' art. Um, and she and I have an exchange of letters about his work. She's somewhat devoted to the idea of rightness, of morality in its own form, correctness in its own form, and principles. And at its best, um, great works of art have those same qualities.
0: You know, I was going to ask another question, Nick, but that's such a beautiful note to end on. Um I just want to say thank you so much for talking about your great book, I Bauhaus, and um, it's been a pleasure to reread it and, of course, a pleasure to to hear from you about it.
1: Wonderful talking with you.
0: Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen really does help other people discover the show I'm Lucas Werner thanks so much for listening and I hope you join us again next time